Take your Bibles out, if you would, this morning, please, and turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. About a week ago, Kevin Knight had asked me if, uh, if I would change up whatever I might be planning for today and if I would be willing to preach on the 23rd Psalm. Uh, and uh, I always try to do what my youth minister asked me to do. So anyway, we will be looking at the 23rd Psalm this morning, obviously one of the greatest portions uh, of Scripture. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll be looking this morning at the subject matter, God's Guidance for Graduates. And it would be my prayer that as we listen to David's words this morning, King David's words, that his profession of faith as he thinks about God's work in his life would be our profession of faith as well. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for this beautiful portion of Scripture. Perhaps the best known portion of Scripture in the entire Bible. And God, I pray that the words on David's lips would also be the words on our lips. That as he says, the Lord is my shepherd, so too, we would be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd as well. Father, I pray that you would shepherd these graduates through all the ups and downs and turns and mountaintops and valleys in their lives, I pray, God, that they would be able to see your constant guidance, that they would see your thumbprints all over their lives and rest assured that you are with them. God, may they seek your guidance in all their decisions in all their relationships, in all of the circumstances that they face in life. May they lean upon you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There was a little boy that loved pancakes so much, his mother just couldn't believe the way every time he got up. And she said, what do you want for breakfast? I want pancakes, pancakes. It was always pancakes. So she decided she would try to break him of his addiction to pancakes. I guess there's worse things to be addicted to. But she decided one Saturday morning that uh, with family breakfast, she was going to cook pancakes and just cook pancakes and let him eat and eat and eat. And he was going to get sick and tired of them. Well, she cooked pancakes after pancakes after pancakes. And he ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. And finally she said, son, do you want any more? He said, no, you know, I'm not sure I've even wanted all those that I've had. 
That's like a lot of people in the world today. They want and they want and they want. They want more and still more. And sooner or later, they find out that they don't want what they have. There's such a lack of contentment in the world today. There's probably very few people in the world today that could say along with the Apostle Paul, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Probably very few people in the world today that have that kind of contentment and that kind of satisfaction. This psalm talks about where that kind of contentment and that kind of satisfaction can be found. What a marvelous passage this is. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the 23rd Psalm the pearl of all the psalms. Alexander McLaren, another great preacher of another era, said the world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm. It has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. Folks, today I want these graduates to see, in fact I want all of us to see, That only God can truly be your source of satisfaction. Only God can bring you and I the satisfaction and the content and the peace in life that each one of us longs for. I wish today that somehow I could make every grad and every person in here take these words to heart. Now we know in the preaching of the word that doesn't happen. Jesus told a parable, a parable of the soils, about how when the seed falls on the soil, there's only one kind of soil that receives the seed. The rest turns it away. We know the mystery of the preaching of the Word of God is that most perhaps will not listen and will not take the words to heart. But if you will listen and will take these words to heart, I can guarantee you on the promise of the Word of God, these words will change your life. The first thing I want you to see this morning is a glorious sovereign. A glorious sovereign. And then secondly, a little later this morning, we will look at a gentle shepherd. But first of all, a glorious sovereign. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Circle those first words in this psalm. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. Because those words right there will define the rest of the psalm. The secret of satisfaction is to see that God is overall. God is sovereign. God is in complete control of all of our lives. Indeed, He's in complete control of everything. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, By Him were all things created, by Him and for Him, and by Him all things hold together. Now I want you to notice where this psalm begins. It does not begin with man. That's the problem in the world today. 
Everybody wants to begin with man. What do I think about something? How do I feel about something? What do I want? But I want you to notice that this psalm, David in this psalm, starts at the proper place. He begins with God. Ladies and gentlemen, if we will begin with God, that will help everything else to fall into place. If you want satisfaction in your life, don't start with yourself. And certainly don't start with the world. Start with God. David says the Lord. It's the Hebrew word, the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah sometimes in our English Bibles. Usually in our English Bibles it will be capitalized, L-O-R-D. All of the words of Lord will be capitalized. If Lord is not in all caps, it's probably the name for God that is Adonai. Also a name for God's Lordship. But if it is L-O-R-D in all caps, it's translating Yahweh. It was the name that God first revealed to Moses at the burning bush there in Exodus 3. When he came to Moses and he said, I am that I am. And this is the name for God that in the Old Testament they went on to use this name 4,000 different times. A name for God used 4,000 times in the Old Testament. It was a name that was very significant and very special to the Hebrews. They considered it too sacred to even pronounce. In fact, when scribes would come across this name, they would get up from their desk, they would take a shower, they would change clothes, they would get a new pen, and then they would sit back down at their desk and they would write this name. And if they came across this name for God multiple times in the text, they would repeat that process over and over and over again. Get up. Take a shower, change clothes, get a new pen, and write this name again. If the verse came up, if the word came up in the next verse, they would do all that again. They did all of that because they considered this a very sacred name for God. Now, what does this name tell us about God? It tells us that He is the covenant keeping God. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And what is very significant about that is the fact that He desires to enter into a relationship with us. God made a covenant with Noah. And then God made a covenant with Abraham. In, In Genesis chapter 12, He renewed that covenant in Genesis chapter 15 and then he made a covenant with all of Israel as they were standing there at the base of the mountain in Exodus 19 when God said you're going to be my chosen people you're going to be a kingdom of priests out of all the people on the face of the earth and he made a covenant with his people as Jesus celebrated the last supper with his disciples he said that the cup represented his blood the blood of the new covenant God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And I'm glad He is because if He wasn't, there would be no hope for me and no hope for you. 
He's the only God. It signifies he's the only God. It's singular. David doesn't use it to refer to many gods. They'd come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, the Egyptians had 360 primary gods. Just their primary gods. They had a primary God for every single day of the year. The Egyptians did. They'd just come out of the land of Egypt. They were going into the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, they would find pagan peoples with many gods. But for David, there's only one God. Have you ever thought about this? There can only be one God. There can only be one sovereign. If there's more than one sovereign, then each of those that you refer to as sovereign or not sovereign God. Because by its definition, there can only be one sovereign God. And this is what's revealed in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one God. And God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three distinct personalities in the Godhead. We call this the Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you do see the concept. For example, Peter. We've been in 1 Peter for a while. I promise you, Lord willing, we we real. We We'll return to 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so two members of the Trinity are mentioned right there in that one verse. Many other places in the Bible reference the Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going away that the Father will send another, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, we're not speaking of three gods. There's only one God. And likewise, we're not talking about one personality who morphs himself like a chameleon into three forms. Some people have that idea. They say the Trinity is like a man. A man is a son. If he's married, he's also a husband. If he has children, he's also a father. And so he's a son, he's a husband, he's a father. That is not the correct analogy of the Trinity. Those who think that way will say something like he's God the Father in the Old Testament, he's God the Son in the New Testament, and now in the church age he's God the Spirit. Again, incorrect. Folks, God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three distinct and separate personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And David says, this God is my shepherd. There is none like him. He stands above all others. All the gods of the nations are just idols. Meaningless idols that men have to prop up. But he and he alone is God. I want to emphasize this to the graduates because I, I, I want to hear what, what, what David is saying here. I want them to hear that David is saying there is none like him. There are many challenges these graduates are going to face in life. There are many trials that they're going to experience. There's, there are many people throughout their lives that will be a blessing to them and many others perhaps that may disappoint them. But God will never disappoint them. 
Everything else in life may change, but God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is a redeeming God who allows us to call Him our shepherd. My prayer is that these grads would learn that early on. Solomon had to learn that lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes, didn't he? And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, he said to young people, Remember God in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. We all experience trouble in life. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You'll have trial and tribulation. It's part of living in a fallen world. But we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lord. He's the all-sufficient God. When he revealed himself by this name to Moses, he said, I am who I am and I will be what I will be. In other words, in this name, God was revealing to Moses that he is the all-sufficient God. Whatever challenges Moses faced before Pharaoh, God would be able to handle it and God would be able to supply whatever Moses needed at the moment. As Moses led the children of Israel out of the promise or into the promised land rather, God would be able to supply each and every one of their needs. And that's what this name symbolized. He's a glorious sovereign. Grads, there is no one like him. We waste our time on so much in life. All of us do. But whatever time, whatever attention, whatever energy you focus in on God, seeking Him and growing in your relationship with Him, I can assure you that is not wasted time. Not only is He a glorious sovereign, though, He's a gentle shepherd. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I want you to think of that. David says, Yahweh, our glorious sovereign Lord who is all sufficient, the great I am, the creator of the ends of the earth is my shepherd. Folks, if you will let that contrast sink in, the one who is sovereign, the one who is overall is also my shepherd. It will blow your mind to think of that. What David is communicating here. Shepherds were very lowly in society. Remember what happened when Joseph and his brothers first went down to Egypt? Joseph told his brothers to do what? To ask Pharaoh to let them dwell in the land of Goshen. Goshen or Goshen was a part of Egypt that, that uh, was removed from much of Egyptian life. It was a place where Israel would be uniquely suited because they were shepherds. The Egyptians didn't like shepherds. And so the Egyptians, I'm sure, would have been all too happy to give Goshen to Israel. And Israel would be all too happy to dwell there. It was a perfect fit. 
Joseph was very wise in telling his brothers to ask Pharaoh if they could dwell there. But not only did the Egyptians not think highly of shepherds, but later on in the New Testament, many in Israel apparently didn't either. It was a necessary occupation, but they were considered unclean. You couldn't live out in fields and tend to herds and then go through all the ceremonial cleansing that made you able to worship in the temple. And so sometimes in Jewish life, they had a low view of shepherds. Sometimes shepherds added to that because as they would go from field to field to field, they would take whatever happened to be in that field. Didn't, didn't matter who owned that field. They'd just sort of scrape off whatever they wanted. So sometimes they added to that. But they were not even allowed to testify in courts of law. And in Israel's history, if you had many sons, oftentimes it was your youngest son that had the role of being a shepherd to the family's herds. And yet we see here that sovereign God, the God of the universe, the one who is and always will be, allows himself to be called our shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? It speaks of him coming to us and identifying with us. A shepherd had to live among his sheep. Now what did God do? God sent a son. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Why? So that he could be not only our redeeming Lord, but our sympathetic high priest. When we go before him with all of our trials and troubles, he understands us. It also speaks not only of his lowliness in coming to us, but also his love. Because a shepherd took care of all the needs of his sheep 24-7. Sheep don't know how to look after themselves. Sheep, if left to themselves, will destroy themselves. And so a shepherd would dwell with his sheep and take care of them. God, think about this folks, God condescends to us. Dwell, condescends that dwells with us that he might be our shepherd. Jesus in John 10 applied uh, this analogy or this metaphor to himself. In John 10, beginning in verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd and who does not own the uh, sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's the good shepherd. Hebrews 13 refers to him as the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5 refers to him as the chief shepherd. As the good shepherd of John 10, what does he do? He lays down his life for us. That's redemption. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. 
That's what the good shepherd did. As the great shepherd, he rose from the dead. That's what Hebrews 13 emphasizes. He's now at the right hand of God and he's our advocate. And as the chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5, Peter emphasizes that he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to be our rightful judge. A gentle shepherd. Graduate, this one who is a glorious sovereign over all, over all the universe, will be your gentle shepherd and look after every need and guide you. Thirdly, I want you to see a generous supply. A generous supply. What does David go on to say here? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is talking about a generous supply there. No wonder David said with the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. A little girl misquoted this verse one time, but she also hit the nail on the head. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. He's all I want. She might have misquoted the verse, but she happened to hit on some pretty good theology. Because if he's all you want, then he's all your need. Again, left to themselves, sheep need everything. Everything, But if the Lord is your shepherd, you don't realize how wealthy you are. David goes on to describe here that he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That speaks of provision. Still water speak of peace. Sheep prefer to drink from pools of still water. They're scared. They're fearful of running water. And, and then he says, he restores my soul. That speaks of pardon. Folks, just like we have physical needs, we also have spiritual needs. Man is not just a body. Man is body, soul, and spirit. So he doesn't just lead us into the green pastures and the still water. He restores our soul. He knows that we are a living soul. Uh, we Body, soul, and spirit. And so he looks after our spiritual needs as well. David said he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. God sees tomorrow. We do not see tomorrow, but God does. I would love these graduates and other young people to let that sink in. God knows where he wants you to be 10 years from now. Sometimes I think I know where God wants me to be, and you know where you think God wants you to be, and we take wrong turns in life, don't we? And you know what? Sometimes in life people take wrong turns and they end up wasting years and years and years. And that's why we need God's guidance. 
And if you're God's sheep and he's your shepherd, he says he will lead you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's putting his reputation on the line. David said he, 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 uh, he's with me in those dark valleys. That speaks of his presence through all the dark times of life. God will not abandon you. He's there. In fact, he may lead you into some dark valleys to get you trusting him. His rod and staff speak of protection. With a rod, a shepherd would fight off enemies. With a staff, he would hook the sheep and pull the sheep back into himself out of danger. The table in the presence of our enemies also speaks of provision and protection. I I think Romans 8.31 is a great commentary on this where Paul says, If God be for us, who can be against us? It's like God says to our enemies, This one is mine. You can't touch him unless I let you for some reason. He's mine. He's under my protection. The anointing of our head with oil... An overflowing cup speaks of plenty. And then dwelling in the house of the Lord speaks of paradise. God created us to live with Him forever in heaven. Folks, we were not simply created for time, but we were created for eternity. And that's why decisions we we make in life, we need to just... Not simply make decisions based on necessarily tomorrow, but we need to think in terms of eternity because we were created for eternity. From beginning to end in his life, what David is talking about here is how God watches over his sheep. You know, the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think of a poem that probably everybody in here has seen. It may be a while since you've read it, but probably everybody in here has seen it. It's the, it's the poem Footprints. It goes like this. One night a man had a dream. He was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from his life. In each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One made by him and the other by the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the worst times of his life and that bothered him very much. And so he asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way, but I've noticed that during times of trouble there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why you left me when I needed you the most. The Lord answered, my precious child, I love you and would never leave you. During your times of trial, when you only saw one set of footprints, it was me that was carrying you. There's an old story from World War II that's made its rounds. I've, I've tried to verify it. I, I can't verify it. 
it may be one of those urban legends, may be truth. It, it's the story of a fighter pilot who on one occasion heard a gnawing sound and he finally discovered what it was. There was a rat on board and it was gnawing on electrical wires behind a panel. Now, incidentally, supposedly it's not uncommon for rodents to be on aircraft today. But he heard this thing gnawing, and he thought, if I can't get to it, if it keeps gnawing, then he's going to probably sever some wire and bring the whole plane down. And so he thought quickly. He put on his oxygen mask, and he climbed, and he climbed, and he climbed, and he climbed. The gnawing got slower and slower and slower, and finally it stopped. Later on, when he was on the ground and searched for the rat, he found it behind one of the panels that he pulled loose. The rat was dead. The pilot had climbed high enough that he had starved the rat of oxygen. The stress of life can be a lot like that rat. It can gnaw away at us. It can destroy us. We have to climb so high, spiritually speaking, that the rat dies. And I think that's what Psalm 23 is talking about. When we are under the great shepherd's care, our feet may be firmly planted on the ground, but we are high and lifted up above the mere things of this earth that would bring us down. And our eyes are on the Lord. This morning, do you know the Lord as your shepherd? It's very personal. He may be your shepherd and 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 and so forth and so on. But he can also be my shepherd and your shepherd. He might be the shepherd of the person sitting next to you, but he can be your shepherd. But it involves a relationship. It's not merely affirming facts about the Bible that you believe. Grads, we can affirm, we can cite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and quote the Lord's Prayer, and we can say all the right words at all the right time and all the right way. But do we know the one who is the reality behind those words? Have you been born again? Has the Spirit of the living God convicted you of your sin, drawn you to faith in Jesus Christ, and your life was changed? You say, I don't know. If you don't know, it probably ain't happened. Pardon the grammar. God is in the business of changing lives. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Not about church membership, baptism, all those things are well and good. But has the spirit of the living God done that divine surgery in your life where he radically changes you and makes you new? The Bible calls that being born again. You see, that's the analogy that Jesus used because that's how radical it is. It's not just turning over a leaf and saying, I'm going to change a little bit. You know, from here on out, I'm going to try to do a little bit better. 
No, God gets a hold of you and God changes you and He brings a peace and a satisfaction in your life that only He can. I was in church all my growing up years, but I wasn't born again until November of 1982, 19 years old. Same stage of life as these students here. Struggling over God's purpose for my life. I knew all the right answers, but God got a hold of me. God is the one who's the pursuer. Just like David says here, surely goodness and mercy shall uh, pursue me all the days of my life. That's the word here. Not just follow me, but pursue me. God pursued me and found me and converted me and changed me. And you know what? The day it happened, I didn't even know it was going to happen. But it did. And a peace replaced the burden. A peace replaced the search. And God made my life new. That's when he became my shepherd. Has he become your shepherd? To say that he is my shepherd also says I'm his sheep. And what did Jesus say about his sheep? My sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. Everybody wants to talk about, oh yeah, God's my shepherd. God, oh yeah, God's going to give me this. He's going to provide for this. He's going to look after me, this, this, this. How about our part? Listening to him. Following him, obedience. That's what's involved in being a sheep in his pasture. Maybe this morning you're looking for satisfaction from the things of the world. You will never find it. Oh, you may, you may temporarily find it. The book of Hebrews says sin is pleasurable for a season. Just like in the skit this morning. Sin's pleasurable for a season. It's fun. You remember some of those days, right? It was fun for a season. But the season changes. The season comes to an end. Your ultimate satisfaction will only be found in Him. If you need Him this morning, I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'd love to pray with you. If you're looking for a church fellowship, we'd love to be your church fellowship. The altar's open if you just want to come forward and pray. Maybe you want to pray for these young people. God, may they find their satisfaction in you and not look for it in the things of the world.